A note before we begin. This conversation includes discussions of sex trafficking and domestic violence. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. There are so many people out there that want to do good. They, they want to help these families. They want to solve these cases. So why not give it to them? Why not give them the stories and, and humanize these individuals? I'm Sarah Turney, and that was Derricka Wilson, co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation. She's talking about the power of podcast listeners to do good, to latch onto stories and learn the names of the people who have gone missing, and hopefully to solve these cases. If you listen to this show, you've heard me reference Black and Missing at the end of several episodes. This incredible foundation has made it their mission to bring awareness to missing persons of color, provide vital resources and tools to missing persons' families and friends, and to educate the minority community on personal safety. And this year, they're celebrating 15 years of operating. In that time, they've brought answers to over 400 cases. They also have a fantastic series on HBO called Black and Missing that came out in 2021. And next week, they're launching their own podcast called Untold Stories Black and Missing on May 24th. I cannot tell you how excited I am to listen to it. And also, if you listen to this show, you know this is our third episode of Missing and Unidentified Persons Month in May. A quick reminder that for more information on Missing and Unidentified Persons Month and to find out ways you can help because that's what it's all about, you can visit spotify.com disappearances. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how excited I am to bring you guys this episode. But first, I'm gonna backtrack because I think it's important to know why I'm so passionate about this episode. If you know this podcast, you know that every Thursday, my goal is to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Usually I do this by examining a well-documented case from history, something with a ton of research that our team can dig into. 
but there's an entire segment of missing person cases where the research has not been as comprehensive because the level of press and media historically hasn't been there. I'm talking, of course, about cases involving people of color, specifically black missing persons. So in honor of Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, in honor of Black and Missing's 15 year anniversary, and most of all, in an ongoing effort to bring awareness and hopefully answers to these cases, I had an amazing conversation with the two founders of the Black and Missing Foundation. They're actually sister-in-laws, Natalie Wilson, as well as Derricka Wilson. Natalie is the co-founder and chief operating officer, and Derricka is also a co-founder and the CEO. Could you each take a moment to introduce yourselves? Hello, everyone. I'm Natalie Wilson, co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation. And I have 20 years of experience in public and media relations, and I'm involved with every aspect of the organization. But my key role is to ensure that we get the media coverage for these cases and to make sure that our missing are household names, too. I am Derek Wilson co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation. I bring over two decades of law enforcement experience and enjoy working with these families at the onset when their loved ones are missing and trying to navigate the process with law enforcement to make sure that they are taking these police reports and helping these families when they are reported missing. Wonderful. I'm really excited to be here. We met... It feels like a long time ago now, but I think it was just last year we finally met in person and just meeting you guys and your presence, you're both so powerful. I'm just so excited to have you here and hopefully shed some light on the foundation. I would love to know if there was a tipping point, maybe something happened or a case that caused you guys to create the foundation. Well, the inspiration behind the organization is a young lady by the name of Tamika Houston, who disappeared from Derricka's hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina. And we read how her family, particularly her aunt, who's in media relations, really struggled to get media coverage, national media coverage. Weeks after Tamika disappeared, Lori Hacking disappeared, and she dominated the news cycle. A year later, Natalie Holloway disappeared. And I'm sure when I said her name, you all can see her face, you know her story. And we weren't sure if this is an issue affecting our community because we definitely didn't see anyone that looked like us getting that national and many times local media coverage. So Derek and I did some research. And at the time, we found that 30 percent of the missing population were people of color. So we said, why not us? I'm in media relations. We need that awareness. We need the power of the media to tell these stories. And we also need law enforcement. And Derricka has that law enforcement background. So that's why we started the organization. And if you fast forward to today, 40% of the missing population are people of color. And we have come a long way as an organization, but we still have a lot more work to do because we're still fighting for media coverage for our missing. We're still fighting to get law enforcement to add resources to the case. And families, we're meeting them at the worst point in their lives. And we are sometimes, many times, their last resort. And they want to give up, but we're coming alongside them, holding their hands and letting them know that we are in this fight with them. And we are going to do all that we can to get them the answers that they deserve. 
And if I could just add one thing, we are not trying to dishonor any community. We're simply trying to even the playing field. Less is more, less of one race and more of everyone that's missing. It greater the chances of a reunion. Well, and I know that, you know, awareness campaigns and advocacy in general is a really hard thing to track in terms of metrics. But how many cases do you guys think you've had a hand in solving at this point? I mean, 15 years is a long time. I'm sure you guys have touched so many cases over the years. We have. We have touched thousands of cases, but we are happy to say that we have provided closure or answers to over 400 cases since our inception. But, you know, we know that we can bring so many more people home if we have our community support. And again, that law enforcement and media support as well. Each year, according to the FBI stats, there are more than 200,000 persons of color reported missing. And we believe that the numbers are much higher because there are some groups within our community, they're not reporting their loved ones missing for fear of maybe deportation or some type of punishment by law enforcement. So we believe the numbers are much higher than 40%. And I think the key word, as Natalie stated, is reported. Many listeners out there may not even know the process in dealing with law enforcement and thinking that when your loved one is reported missing and you get that police case number, that's it. Those numbers come from the FBI database, which is the NCIC, that's the National Crime Information Center. And so once a family report their loved ones missing to law enforcement, Law enforcement will have to upload that information into another database. So again, the numbers are much higher because we have found in our work that some of the families that we are helping and that we're serving, their case never went into the NCIC. And that is how law enforcement collects the data and put out those numbers every year from the FBI. Did you catch that? Just reporting your loved one missing to the police isn't what clocks that disappearance with the FBI. It takes the police uploading that information to the FBI consistently for them to know the real number of missing persons, including how many are missing persons of color. I talk more with Derica and Natalie about police work later on. But first, I wanted to understand why these numbers are so high to begin with. I would love to just address the elephant in the room and expand further on what areas you guys touch, why you're needed, why this foundation needs to exist in the first place, because I'm already getting aggravated about it. What we're finding is oftentimes race is a barrier to media coverage, law enforcement resources, your zip code, where you live within the community or in certain populations, urban areas is a barrier. Your economic status is a barrier to those vital resources needed. And if you peel back to layers, people are disappearing for a number of reasons, right? Sex trafficking is one. Our young girls and even boys are being sex trafficked at a higher rate than any other group. So we need to take a look at that. You know, homelessness, your economic status, our kids that are in foster care, no one is really keeping up with them. And mental health challenges, 
is also a reason why people are disappearing at an alarming rate. So we have to, again, peel back the layers and look at it holistically and make the punishment fit the crime because we know and the pimps and the pedophiles know that when a young girl of color or a black girl is missing, no one is really going to look for her and the punishment for trafficking her is not as harsh as any other group. There was research conducted by the Urban Institute and traffickers were interviewed. And in that interview, traffickers admitted to targeting Black women and girls for two reasons. Reason number one, they knew that law enforcement would not look for them if they were reported missing. And number two, they said that they would get less jail time targeting a Black girl or woman versus targeting a white woman or child. Wow. I would love if you could expand a little bit on the statistics around these types of cases. What are we looking at? Uh, What are the disparities there? Well, 40% of human trafficking victims are Black girls and women, just like 40% of missing persons in the United States are persons of color, yet African-Americans make up 13% of the population. So the numbers are alarming. And we want to do something. We have to do something about it. And when it comes to law enforcement, we want law enforcement to see us as allies. We understand and recognize that missing persons isn't considered a priority with law enforcement. We understand that there are limited resources, but we are here to help them solve these cases. And I think it's equally important to also know that the person who goes missing is not the same person who returns home when we find them. So there are additional resources that are needed for these individuals that went missing because we don't know what they experienced while they were out there. Well, and I know that you guys work with law enforcement agencies across the country, and I would love to discuss the inconsistencies you see. I'm sure that you have to kind of adapt your style as you go across the country working with these different departments. What have you seen working with so many? Everyone has their own agenda because every jurisdiction has its own policy and procedures. So, for example, you know, you have states like Illinois, Maryland, even Washington, D.C., There's no waiting period. If a person is missing, regardless of age, you can report to law enforcement immediately. Unfortunately, our families still have challenges, even though that exists. You know, law enforcement will tell them, you know, wait 24 to 48 hours. Your loved one may return back home. We need them to make sure they're taking those police reports immediately. Some of the other challenges, I'm going back to the National Crime Information Center, NCIC. I recently spoke with a detective about a case only to learn that a person they're looking for and the family has reached out to our organization because their loved one is missing has not been entered into NCIC. So, for example, if a person is missing from Maryland and they have a run in or come in contact with law enforcement in California or Texas, that police officer would know that that is a missing person from Maryland. If they are not entered into NCIC, then that law enforcement official has no way of knowing that that person is missing and therefore that person will continue to remain missing. That is why it is so important. So for a detective to tell us that this person is not in NCIC, this person has had some issues 
we know that this person is involved in some activity and they're kind of working with another jurisdiction, but that doesn't make sense to me. There needs to be a standardized procedure in how to handle cases because you're leaving it up to the discretion of the officer. And not every officer is passionate about missing person cases. But when you establish policies and procedures and you hold them accountable, then you can't really argue against what's in black and white. Absolutely. Well, and as a former law enforcement officer, what is your advice to people working in these departments who really want to help? My advice, first and foremost, it takes all of us. It takes law enforcement, it takes the media, and it takes the community. And We want law enforcement across the country to understand that they're not in this by themselves, that we can help them. And I'll use as an example, we just had a detective to utilize our platform by inputting information of a missing person that they need our assistance in helping. That is powerful because we want them to view us as partners. We want them to understand that we do have the resources, the reach, And I think also that is a cry for help as well, because if you look across the country, many police departments do not have a dedicated missing person unit. You have many police departments that may have one detective assigned to missing person cases. That detective may also be assigned to homicide. And then when you think about, well, what takes priority, missing person or homicide? Well, I'm here to tell you that a missing person case is a homicide waiting to happen. And therefore, there needs to be those resources there. So, you know, we do challenge law enforcement to look at themselves. Look at your policy and procedures. Where are updates needed? Just recently, we were looking at a policy from one police department and on their uniform report, they utilized the classification runaway. But in their policy and procedures, that is not one of their classifications. So I think it's just simple housekeeping as well. Take the time to review your policy and procedures and adjust them accordingly. Absolutely. And I think you touched on a lot of these policies that seem to be holding people back. And I I hate it because I just don't believe in these mandatory waiting periods to report someone missing, right? I just, I will never tell a family that they have to wait even if the police tell them to, right? And it's hard because outside of just making resources appear, which I know is another barrier to entry with law enforcement, I work on the board of Season of Justice, a nonprofit that provides funding to law enforcement. And I can't tell you how many departments I've worked with that said, hey, there's too much red tape to take money from you guys to help solve these cases. So how outside of making resources just appear for these departments, how does one actually change a policy within these departments? Well, one of the things that we have been fortunate enough to be able to do is be in the room with decision makers. I am a member of NOBLE, which is the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. We speak to those leaders in law enforcement. And just last summer, we held a workshop at the National Conference in Orlando. And to be in a room with police chiefs, majors, captains, lieutenants, and telling them 
what we see day to day in dealing with these families and how they can help. We've been fortunate enough to hear from some of these agencies to say, hey, Black and Missing Foundation, we listened to you. We heard what you said. We reviewed our policy and procedures. We got rid of the classification runaway, or we got rid of that 24-hour waiting period. So that is a start. And we're continuing to do that because we will have an expanded presence at this year's conference to be able to have a town hall as well as a training session for law enforcement on handling missing person cases as well as doing case studies. And Sarah, I'd also like to add that we need to expand the public communication alert system. Right now, there are two categories. It's either an Amber Alert or Senior Alert, Silver Alert. And most people do not fall within those categories. So they are outside of the policy or procedure when it comes to notifying the media or the community. So we have also been speaking to elected leaders on enhancing those policies and alert systems so that we can physically see or see these individuals that don't fall within those guidelines. I mean, those two issues hit so close to home for me, I have to say. Of course, my sister, you know, was white, but something like an Amber Alert and not being classified as a runaway could have been the difference between her being missing for 20 years and coming home a lot sooner. I would love if you could talk about possibly some some current cases you're working on. Well, there are, you know, tons of cases that we are working on, whether it is Keisha Jacobs, who is still missing from Richmond, Virginia. She's been missing since September of 2016, to Shariah Williams, who's missing out of Indianapolis, Jesse Lynn Folks, who's missing out of LA. So we have Tons of cases that we need the community and the media and law enforcement to continue to assist us in helping to find them and bring them home. And with Quiche, as I mentioned, she went to visit a friend and she told her mom, you know, I'll be back home. And she never showed up. Shariah Williams, 17 years old, she was last seen at school. And no one seems to know what has happened to her. Is she a victim of sex trafficking? And Jesse Lynn Folks out of L.A., who told his mother, I'm going to the store. He was actually on the phone with his mom telling her, I'm going to the store. I'll call you when I get back. And she hasn't heard from him since. And that's been 19 months since he's been missing. I want to pause right here to tell you that to learn more information about each of those cases, you can visit the Black and Missing Foundation's website at BAMFI.org. I'll bring that up again at the end of the episode, but you can visit their site to see photos and details for each of these cases, and most importantly, to report any information you might have. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, your work is just so valuable to all of the missing, I just want to say. And I love that you keep discussing the idea of media and law enforcement, because I think that combination is what solves cases. But I would love to know in your own words, what role do you think media plays in the likelihood of a case being solved? Media plays a vital role when someone is missing. One, it alerts the community and the community members can be very vigilant as they go about their day. But it also puts pressure on law enforcement to add resources to the case. And we've seen success in both of those areas. We have had individuals who received that media coverage from our local and national partners. And within minutes, we were able to receive a tip that led directly to the missing individual and was able to bring them home. So again, media coverage is vital. It's needed. And we cannot do this work without that media coverage. Obviously, I couldn't agree more. And I have to imagine that we have some listeners in there that work for some of these larger media companies. So I would love to know, with your PR experience, what do you think someone working in media can do to help these cases? Well, there are a couple of things. One, what we're finding is many times media outlets do not have a policy or procedures in place. So if you get two calls into a news station, how do you determine who gets that coverage? Who is making that decision? So if you work in media, when you go back to your office, find out what is your policy on media coverage. And then you can also use your personal social media platform or ask your media outlet. You can't show the individual on your website. You can't do a quick segment. Can you news reporter, use your social media platform to bring awareness, again, because somebody knows something. And we also need more diversity in the newsroom. So if you have students that can't decide what field they want to go into, think about journalism. Think about working at a news station so you can tell the stories that matter to you and your community and these families that we serve. I'm going to pause right here because I loved what Natalie just said. And I talk about this all the time, but there are so many ways to get involved and to help. It can be as simple as sharing something from your phone, or it can be your whole career. Beautiful. Thank you. And I did want to shift a little bit to the law enforcement side. I would love to know, do you guys think that most of these departments, and I know that they're all different, but do you feel that law enforcement is doing enough to help solve these cases? What I think is happening right now, we can all see across the country, law enforcement, they're really struggling to recruit. There are very limited resources. And sadly, we are seeing the recruitment efforts from law enforcement bringing others into a community that they have no knowledge about. They're policing a community and they're not from that community. And so I think there's a bigger issue there. I also think that we are just, and when I say we, people of color are just not viewed to be valuable. Our cases are not taken seriously. Our children are being labeled as runaways. 
our adults, their disappearance is associated with some sort of criminal activity. And I think about Jesse Foltz, who Natalie mentioned earlier, a son who was missing from California. And I remember when his mother reached out to our organization and she shared pictures of her son, handsome young man. And we know that she provided law enforcement with the pictures of her son because she took that same email and forwarded it to us so we can have the information to upload to our database. And to see that law enforcement's initial response in creating a flyer for him was of a mugshot. That was really disheartening. That was dehumanizing. That was humiliating because he is a valuable member of the community. And it was something that happened so long ago, which wasn't even a factor in his disappearance whatsoever. We see this all the time where mugshots are used and it really sends this negative message to the viewers of that flyer. And there's this perception that whatever happens to him or her, they brought it on themselves because they are now criminalized. They look like criminals on these flyers versus valuable members of the community. And so, you know, image is everything. And we need law enforcement to understand that they have to show empathy. There needs to be more training as it relates to cultural diversity and sensitivity because these families need it. And that's a start with law enforcement being the gatekeeper. I mean, to your point, Derica, even when the accused go into trial, right, they are given the opportunity to not wear, you know, what they wear in prison. They're given the opportunity to wear formal clothing so that they're not seen that way. So why the missing aren't afforded the same opportunity doesn't make sense to me. I mean, surely in that case specifically, there were other pictures available. And I would argue that in 99% of cases, there are probably other pictures available as well outside of a mugshot. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking of a recent case that unfortunately came to a very sad ending, a case that our organization was working on. But this particular individual that was missing out of New York, a law student to be exact, had wonderful pictures. And I remember seeing the flyer that law enforcement created for him. And at the top of the flyer, in bold pronounced letters, it said wanted. And it was probably in about 60-inch font, and in very small font, less than 20, it said missing person. Again, it sends a negative message. Here's a missing law student, and the first thing that comes across is like a wanted person, as if he's wanted for a crime. And of course, we provided flyers for that family to circulate because we want people to understand that this is someone's son. And unfortunately, when law enforcement choose to not take these cases seriously or put out flyers such as the one I just spoke about, families are taking matters into their own hands. So they start creating their own flyers. And sadly, when they're creating their flyers, they're putting their personal information out there. Now they're dealing with the fact that they have a missing loved one and now they're receiving scam and ransom calls. You know, we've had families to lose their entire life savings, had families to lose their home because they have been scammed by these 
I call them keystroke gangsters, people hiding behind their screens, their computers, being malicious, taking advantage of our vulnerable. Oh, yeah. No, I've seen it as well. It's it's horrifying how these people prey on these families, and especially when there's no interference from law enforcement there. You know, if there's a flyer with just the family's number on it, absolutely. People are going to take advantage. They know that these families are desperate. And going back to your point about the flyers, these flyers are so incredibly important. And I really want to stress that. It's almost like, I hate to say it, but it's like seeing a movie poster and deciding if you want to watch the movie. People see these flyers and make automatic judgments. And I hate it, but that's just how it is. They decide in that split second, is this person worth fighting for? Is this person worth sharing this flyer? And yeah, those graphics can unfortunately persuade people to either share or not share and walk away. If you haven't noticed by now, there are so many missteps that can happen when it comes to reporting or discussing a missing person. So many mistakes that can translate to missed opportunities. But speaking of opportunities, I couldn't have a conversation with two such powerful advocates of missing persons without talking about one of my favorite mediums. And of course, that's podcasts. I wanted to know, what were their thoughts on true crime as a platform for raising awareness? Well, I think that any platform that will help us amplify our missing, you know, we have to go where the audience is. And, and honestly, I mean, I think Natalie says it best. I mean, this, it's true crime, but it's real life. This is not for entertainment purposes. This is taking the message to a broader audience and having them to come along and utilize their passion to try to help solve some of these true crimes, help us solve these missing person cases. I realized later on in life that I've always been a true crime buff. I didn't realize it, but, you know, growing up, I watched Americans Most Wanted every single weekend and Unsolved Mysteries every single weekend. And I look at how I was and I look at the community that supports the true crime and and being able to get them involved. True crime audience are the community members. And I think that they can use their resources, their platform, their passion to help in the nightmare for the families that are dealing with the unknown. And one of the biggest frustrations that we hear from families is that they feel unseen, unheard. And to have this platform available to them so that missing persons case can be shown to a wider audience is so powerful. If you look at other cases, true crime cases, the community spun into action and they were able to solve the case. So we're hoping with true crime, really seeing more of the missing persons of color cases, we would bring more people home and it will spur our community to one, try to solve the case, but to know that this issue exists. I mean, when we're speaking, our community still doesn't believe that people are disappearing at an alarming rate. And it's hard to change their mindset. So if they see it on TV or on the news or they're listening to a podcast, then they tend to believe like, oh my God, yes. And they can see themselves in some of these stories. 
and want to bring about change. Absolutely. And I wanted to talk about and and ask you how you feel about the rise of the independent content creator in true crime versus traditional media. I mean, I know when I was fighting for my sister, I had so much more luck, you know, reaching out to people on YouTube, reaching out to podcasts, getting people to care. It, It, You know, as a family member, it seemed like the major media didn't really care. It wasn't until I got that traction with other sources that they began to care. So circling back, I I would love to know in your own words, what can people like me do? What can the individual content creator in true crime do? Because there are so many of us. I think people are now realizing that they actually have a platform. They have a voice. And I think it's coupled with passion. If there is something that they're passionate about, they're pushing it even further. I mean, if someone happens to just retweet or just post, repost one of our flyers, you know, one tweet, one post, one share can solve a case. And I think there are so many people out there that want to do good. They want to help these people. They want to solve these cases. So why not give it to them? Why not give them the stories and humanize these individuals, because sometimes, especially with law enforcement, they're not humanized, they're criminalized. So with our organization, we're humanizing these cases. And for us to be able to take that to the true crime audience, for them to continue on and help us get the information that's needed, because we do and families do. They, they're always doing their own investigation. You know, we have families all the time being their own CSI and they're providing law enforcement with information because law enforcement hasn't been able to get that. But I think, again, it's all of us. We all have to work together. Yeah, I love that. And I know one case that comes to my mind specifically in terms of independent content creation is Georgia Leah Moses, who, before her sister Angel, made a podcast about her case because Georgia was actually, like you mentioned earlier, it was a missing case that turned homicide. But she wasn't found for quite some time in California. And at that point, police didn't even speak to her mother to get her correct middle name. So the podcast was called, they called her Georgia Lee because throughout this investigation, her sister found out that they got so many things wrong, like I said, including that her middle name was Leah. So it's just, it's incredible. I I love seeing these families advocating because as much as law enforcement and the media are incredible and there are so many people that help for families, they don't clock out of these cases. This doesn't leave. They don't leave the office and go home and and just forget about it. It sticks with them. Well, this might be a good time to kind of take a step back because I did want to give the listener a clear vision of what services and resources you offer to the community. When a family comes to you, what does that process look like? The initial intake of a case, we want to make sure that there is a police report on file. That is the basics that really gets the case going with our organization. And once we're able to verify that there is a police report on file and that the jurisdiction know that we are working along with the family and we're looking to partner with them as an ally to help them close the case, we're able to take off running. And so we create flyers for the families. We circulate that on social media. We share it with our media partners because our ultimate goal when we share it online is for that flyer to go viral. We assist families with reunification. We assist families, sadly, with burial expenses when their loved ones has been found deceased. And that's just a little bit of the many things that we're able to do for the families. And sadly, we have situations where 
this has been a life-changing ordeal. So I think about this one mother that I was just on the phone with a couple of days ago. Her daughter is missing and her daughter is the mother of a toddler. And so grandmother is now raising that toddler because her daughter is missing. And I don't think that people realize how someone being missing from your family, the absence of someone impacts everyone. So we we provide support to those families in navigating what this process looks like and providing that financial support because now they are dealing with something that they could never have even imagined. So, you know, we're there with them every step of the way. And then we also have a partnership where we can provide care coach services to families who need additional services and counseling and therapy. We do have a partnership to be able to refer those families to get additional services needed while they're going through it or even after the fact. Now, before we move on to the future and our calls to action about how people can help, I just wanted to give you another opportunity if there were any other cases you'd like to highlight. Another case that's near and dear to me is Ariana Fitz. Ariana was two years old, missing out of San Francisco. She's about eight years old now. Sadly, her mother was found buried in a shallow grave in a park in San Francisco. And Ariana's aunt is looking for her and she believes that Ariana is alive. And that's a case that it makes me stay up at night wondering, is she okay? Is she a victim of sex trafficking? Like, where is she? What has happened to her? And I too believe that she is alive. And I'm hoping that someone would go to our page Look at the profiles in California and look up Ariana Fitz, beautiful young girl. She was a toddler when she disappeared and helped her aunt Tess to find her. And there's one other case I would like for us to also highlight is Cody Bixby. He's now five years old. He went missing on January the 31st, 2022 from Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia. And the last person to have seen Cody was his father. And he was last seen around 9 a.m. Well, the officers were called around 9 a.m., but he was last seen around 4 a.m. that morning. So this little boy, he can be anywhere. And we just encourage the listeners to visit our website at BAMFI.org. Look up Cody Bisbee's case as well out of the Virginia area. In fact, for all the listeners out there, we encourage you to visit our website and look up cases in your respected states to see who's missing and share the information because someone out there knows something. And when you share it, that one person may see something and say something and help end the nightmare for the families that we're serving. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Ariana's case is one that hits me hard too. So I hope a lot of people share that case and every case that you mentioned, of course. So I want to talk about, you guys have this incredible documentary on HBO called Black and Missing, which I would consider like the gold standard of national media coverage. I would love if you guys could talk a little bit about it. It really all started in 2017. Natalie and I, we received the Black Girls Rock Community Change Agent Award 
that was aired on BET. And Soledad O'Brien learned about our organization and wanted to use her platform to assist. So she is the executive producer of Black and Missing on HBO Max. And, and that's really how it all came to fruition. She wanted to help us tell these stories. And as Natalie stated, uh, peeling back the layers of the systemic issues, why people of color are going missing in the first place. I think from our perspective, we want to take that proactive approach. We want to show people the reasons so we can keep our community members safe. And again, it goes back to homelessness, domestic violence, trafficking, mental health, and the list goes on and on. So if we are able to show some of the root causes why people are going missing, then we can better protect our community from going missing. I know I mentioned the HBO doc at the beginning of this episode. I want to say that I am a huge fan. It follows Natalie and Derica around showing what they really do on a day-to-day basis to help these families, how they're the bridge with law enforcement and the media, how they advocate for awareness and policy change. All of that behind-the-scenes work is so important, not least of which is actually recovering missing persons. I can't gush enough about it. I would love to ask, what does the future look like for the foundation? What comes next? Our anniversary, 15th year anniversary, is May 24th. And from May 1st through the 28th, we will be running a series of billboard campaigns throughout the country in 15 cities, that's additional 10 million eyes on 45 cases. We have a podcast coming out in May also, Untold Stories, Black and Missing. But ultimately, we want to change laws and policies that can protect those that are most vulnerable. And we will never stop searching for any of those black and brown individuals missing from our community. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, I know that you guys have your annual walk coming up. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. Our Hope Without Boundaries 5K Run Walk, it will take place on June 3rd at the National Harbor in Maryland. This is our largest fundraising event that we have yearly. And it's a day of hope for us to rally around families that are still searching for their loved ones, to have the support of individuals that we have found and reunited with their loved ones. And thank you, Sarah, for being a sponsor to our 5K for the second time. We really greatly appreciate everything that you have done and continue to do for the Black and Missing Foundation. Oh my gosh, you're so sweet. You didn't have to say that, but you are very, very welcome. And if someone wants to get involved in the organization, how can they do that? They can visit BAMFI.org. And again, something as simple as taking a look at who's missing from your community and sharing that profile within your network. It could be one, two, a hundred, a million people. We just need one person to come forward with some information so that a family can be reunited with their missing loved one and they can sleep at night. That's a low-hanging fruit thing that you can do. And don't turn a blind eye to this issue. We all possess something within our reach or resource that can help these families 
Maybe it's taking food to them. A mother who is at wit's end as to how to find her child. Babysitting. There's so much you can do. Invite us to your organization so that we can speak on the issue. Again, education and awareness is key so that there is never a need for the Black and Missing Foundation. And from the law enforcement perspective, especially for those listeners out there that work in this profession, we are a resource. We are able, willing, and ready to help amplify these cases to help solve these cases and get these individuals reunited with their loved ones. And Sarah, I'd also like to add from a media perspective to be mindful about sensitivity around the images used to highlight missing persons cases. We had a case recently where a media partner featured a missing woman We gave them the pictures, but the media outlet went to her social media platform and chose some provocative pictures. And the community was outraged by that. So again, be mindful of the images that are being used when you do show an individual on air, because again, we want to have that connection that this missing person is a mother, a father, a grandparent, a child that is valued and need to return home. We don't want the perception to be, well, because he or she is wearing something, they brought this crime on themselves. So be mindful of the images that's used. I think for all the listeners out there, it just takes one you know, one tweet, one share to help us find our missing. It may get to that right person and that right person may be able to help us solve this case or the many cases that we're working on. And with that, we reach the end of our conversation. But I just want to dwell on both of those last points Natalie and Erica made. Please be mindful of the images you share of these missing individuals. Like Natalie said, this is someone's family. If it looks wrong or feels wrong, just think twice about it. But also to Derricka's point, do share these cases. To look up all the cases mentioned in this episode, Keyshate Jacobs, Shariah Williams, Jesse Lynn Folks, Cody Bigsby, Ariana Fitz, and her mother Nicole, whose homicide case is still unsolved, along with so many others the organization advocates for, you can visit bamfi.org. That's B-A-M-F-I dot org. They have photos and information on these cases, as well as other resources for learning more about their annual 5K, billboards, and all the other initiatives they're a part of. And for more information on Missing and Unidentified Persons Month and ways to be involved with all cases of missing persons, as well as resources if you yourself are missing a loved one, you can visit spotify.com forward slash disappearances. Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Sapphire Williams and Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. 
To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. 